0: uh good afternoon to all of you joining us from uh, wherever uh this is the university of ghana school of law uh, law in crisis series access to electoral information and voter engagement uh, under the specter of pandemics and as you may already know uh, this is an opportunity where the panel of experts will give us their perspectives on the issue and then the participants also have the opportunity to engage uh, the panel of experts especially through me the moderator in some 25 minutes the just ended voter registration exercise mobilized nearly 17 million citizens to register to vote in december's presidential and parliamentary elections this should be evidence of voter interest, even in the era of COVID-19, as the Electoral Commission spends some $150 million on the controversy docked project. But are citizens able to access electoral information and how are they engaged in the light of COVID-19 restrictions ahead of the December votes? we seek to find out, uh, explore this question, and ask if there are any implications in this. Now our guests are uh, persons that you may have encountered in one way or the other. <clears throat> and <clears throat> Mrs. Rhoda Osei-Afu is team leader, elections, rule of law, and anti-corruption at the CDD Ghana. You may have also been associated with her more particularly as she has uh, led processes and spoke for the, uh, the certified body, Kodeo, that has been monitoring elections and giving us practical feed on what goes on in elections in this country so rhoda good afternoon thank you for joining us
1: good afternoon thank you
0: great also joining us uh, is bright simmons bright simmons is with mpeg degree and you may know also that bright simmons uh more particularly within the jurisdiction of ghana although may be known uh, for the mpeg degree uh, Novel uh, innovation but often associated as the honorary uh, member or executive of Imani Africa. Bright, thank you very much for making the time to join us.
2: thank you very much for inviting me, Samson.
0: Great. Also joining us is the chairperson of the uh, NCCE, Josephine Nkroma, and Josephine Nkroma Uh, has clearly given most of us uh, a good idea of how a commission such as hers, which is a constitutionally mandated body to educate the public about these things, uh, as in people's rights, their constitutional duties and obligations, she has given us quite a good dose of understanding by always being proactive and speaking and engaging the public and opening up the NCC to all of us. Thank you for making the time to join us, Ms. Josephine Nkrumah. Thank you,
3: Samson, and good afternoon to my co panelists
0: Thank you very much. And last but not least, joining us is a senior lawyer, Akoto Ampao, and Akoto Ampao also, you may know him uh, as someone who has been at the forefront of the Right to Information um, Bill until it got passed. The Right to Information Bill, whose crusade has been, uh, been ongoing for almost two decades. And Akutuan Power has been at the forefront of that crusade until the Right to Information Act got passed uh, sometime last year. Thank you for making the time. Mr. Akutorampal.
4: Thank you, Samson, and uh, good afternoon to our viewers.
0: Great. Now, as you already know, this is the University of uh, Ghana School of Law, Law in Crisis Series, Access to Electoral Information and Voter Engagement under the specter of pandemics. Now, we will go straight away to engage uh, guests and would like for our guests to start uh, to give us an idea of their appreciation of the subject matter and why it is important in the first place to look at a subject such as these. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, for two minutes each, let us uh, begin to understand uh, what you think will be the sort of critical electoral information that citizens will require and whether you do observe any impediments in accessing them because of the pandemic. I will begin with the chairperson of the NCCA. Ms. Josephine Krummer, can we hear you?
3: Thank you, Samson. Um, undoubtedly, we know that the global pandemic has um, placed all kinds of impediments in the way of governance and in life generally as we speak for a country such as Ghana particularly being an election year it has been um, the implications have been even more pronounced and that for me it's because of the protocols that we have to adhere to and how that impacts on access to electoral information and um, voter engagement. For me when we talk about electoral information, it is that kind of information that is specific to ensuring that elections ultimately are inclusive, are transparent, and are trusted. And so any kind of information that impinges on this is of immense importance for access by the citizenry, and of course, affects also voter engagement. So in that light, the way we become more innovative in ensuring that we, are, we, we continue to enhance access to information despite the protocols that we have, we can engage the citizen in a manner that ensures that they stay engaged and enable them to make informed decision or informed choices and during elections is critical in time. So for me, this is the essence of the have. It.
0: Right. Um, Can we hear uh, from Rhoda as well uh, what your perspective will be as regards the importance of this particular subject that uh, is engaging us this afternoon?
1: Well, thank you very much and good afternoon to everyone who's been able to join us. Um, I would say that um, we know that traditionally, I mean, access to information generally is something that has been quite challenging in, in our country. And which is why there was a lot of efforts uh, in pushing for the passage of the Access to Information Act. And so when we find ourselves in a situation like we have now, which is the COVID pandemic, where citizens still have to make a very crucial decision as regards who gets to govern them, then of course you want to be uh, you, you you will be concerned about whether citizens have the right kind of information, given that access to information under this uh, situation may be limited. Uh, Traditional means of reaching out to people may not be uh, possible, uh, like direct community-level engagement. And so it's important that we, we think through some of these issues and see how best we can enhance access, because electoral accountability really rests On citizens access to information. So this is a very great conversation and I look forward to the next several minutes
0: Right, Uh, Mr. Bryce Simmons. What what do you what do you uh, think or who do you identify as a key stakeholders in such a conversation? uh, about access to electoral information and like I asked earlier, what uh, sort of critical electoral information do citizens require and why uh, is such access relevant for the democratic uh, conversation as we get to December 2020?
2: Yeah, thank you, um, Sansan. <laughs> Quite clearly, we need to distinguish between the information that is related to mere processes and substantive democratically empowering information. And the way that I've seen it over the last couple of years in this country It appears as if the understanding of the Electoral Commission is that information related to the management of the elections is a purely technocratic function, and therefore they provide information that is, for instance, related to number of who have voted in a day or in a location. That is more or less the be all and the end all. From the way I've observed their practices for more than a decade now, it has appeared to me that their interpretation of their duty of care to citizens in relation to information is narrowly contained within a prescription that suggests that that information is only procedural. So for instance, when it comes to the more fundamental issues of accountability of their own practices, they rarely see the need to make that information public. So if you want, for instance, information related to spending, information related to hiring, information related to um, procurement, information that is related to auditing of political parties, information that is related to sanctions um, against specific, in relation to specific infractions of the electoral law that are within their domain to initiate, none of that information is available. we have never made it available, they don't consider it the identity to make it available. I think that is a culture of information practice that as far as I'm concerned, is completely retrogressive. So my interest in this topic is to reestablish the fact that when it comes to the democratic practice, the voters' need for information is not that different from the citizens' need for information from other institutional bodies or other constitutional organs of states. So in the same way that we demand information in relation to... How government passes laws, how government makes policies—I see no difference whatsoever as far as the electoral commission and the electoral management
0: bodies are concerned. In terms of the quality and the type of information that I demand. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we can now hear Mr. Kutumapao on the significance of the subject matter uh, and the relevance uh, of this question of access to electoral information as we head to the 2020 elections. Hello, Mr. Akutapao.
4: Yes, thank you, uh, Samson. I I agree with all that the earlier speakers have said, uh, only to emphasize the point that the whole purpose of elections is to enable citizens based on good information to make judgments as to who should govern this country. They can't make that decision, they cannot exercise their right to vote in an informed manner without all relevant information related to the EC, related to the political parties, and and related to the issues of the day that are of concern to the citizenry. So it is fundamental, I mean, access to information on on matters of state, not just election, Mm. on matters of state, which feed into the election process, are very vital. And and, and they reinforce the sovereignty of the people. And therefore, the passage of the right information only strengthens the constitutional provisions relating to the sovereignty of the people of Ghana in whose name and for whose welfare all powers of government are to be exercised and also reinforces the provision of Article 21 of the Constitution that guarantees the right to information. So my, my view is that all relevant issues are on the table. How political parties um, submit their accounts, what actions the EC has taken, where political parties flout their obligations under the political parties' law. Mm -hmm. Questions of how political parties are funded are also implicated, and how members of the parties are accounted to by the political parties as to the way they use the the, the funds of the party, also directly relevant. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, I need to draw attention to a very important provision of of the Constitution, which is Article 45 Clause D, which places on the Electoral Commission not only to educate the people on the electoral process, but its purpose, its purpose, so as to have informed citizens that will take informed decisions as to who should be members of parliament, who should be president, so and that will ensure that we will make progress as a nation. So I think that all these things are critical. Um, the pandemic, of course, has um, posed uh, substantial difficulties to access to information. However, I think that on the other hand, it provides the opportunity for fairly rigorous dissemination of information. Mm. The only issue that um, the, the pandemic poses has to do with inequality of access for. Poor people, marginalised people, uh, many of our people in in, in, in the rural communities, mm. and that again raises for me an important duty that uh, is uh, imposed on um, the the elect the NCCE in section two e. Section two e of the act establishing ncce which says that the ncce must provide information to government on inequalities between different levels of the population in accessing information in order to achieve true democracy so here again whilst you know the the emerging uh, online platforms provide even a more effective way of engaging you know the educated uh, the urban population most of the urban population who have access to these facilities there's a question of how in the pandemic uh, we are going to ensure that information gets to a large number of our, our population in rural communities. So those are some of the key issues that I think we need to take account of. And finally, there is also for me the question of the new um, tracking uh, platforms that are aimed at facilitating uh, prevention of mass um, spread of, um, of, of the virus. They raise raise questions of privacy and also their legitimate use. And I think it is an area that needs full interrogation, you know. Okay. So those are my my immediate concerns.
0: Right. Um, I'd like us to bring some, you know, practical experiences to the subject matter itself about access to electoral information. And Bright has already indicated uh, in a very general sense how he says information is almost practically unavailable and not accessible, including procurement information. Of course, we'll very soon get to know how, um, get to see one clear evidence of how the EC was reluctant until it was compelled by the court. But Bright, can you help us understand practically. um, You need information to do the work that you do, uh, particularly uh, at Imani Africa and your engagement with the public as far as elections are concerned. In what ways have you suffered, you know, any setbacks in seeking information? And the same question will go to Rhoda once you are done. So we get to know, how you have sought information and perhaps did not get that information and how that has impacted what you have to do. Thank you, uh, Samson. So I have a short presentation
2: that with the permission of the organizers um, I produced. Am I allowed
0: to share it now? Certainly.
2: Thank you very much. So, is my screen visible to you, Samson?
0: Um, yes, it is.
2: Good. As far as I'm concerned, we have to regard the Electoral Commission as an institution and as the same, Sam, as an instrument of power and of the establishment. It's not any different from the courts, It's not any different from any of the technocratic bodies that have been imbued with massive amounts of power to influence citizen behavior and citizen outcomes. So if we start from that premise, that it has power, it uses that power, and must be accountable for that power, and treat it less as we would some kind of entity like the post office, which typically wants to be treated as and treat as a, an entity that has immense power to influence who becomes the president of this country, a position with immense influence over all of our lives, or who becomes a member of parliament, an institution with immense power. And in some instances nowadays, because of the stature of the Electoral Commission, the resources that it has, even private entities and quasi public entities like political parties. Go to the electoral commission for internal democratic purposes. These are immense amounts of power that it exercises. And the way that I see the electoral commission's role is one of the exercise of power. If that was the case, then we need to take the electoral process in its entirety, starting from issues around order 10, issues around training and the likes of it, on and treat the election itself as merely the end process. Of course, there's nothing profound about this point. I think almost everybody will agree that that indeed is the nature of the electoral process. It begins from the very day that one government is elected and does not terminate, but ends one cycle when that government leaves office or it's allowed another term by the citizens. So it's a continuous process of education, of administrative management, and also practically of the exercise of power in ways such as vetting candidates, deciding whether or not the candidate to meet the legal requirements to file, to stand for office, determining whether particular rules of spatial organization suit the exercise of voting power by citizens. So the way that the electoral commission decides to cite um, voting or registration centers could have immense impact on how people practically exercise the right that they have. So if you take that whole continuum of multiple processes interlink processes, etc. The power that the Electoral Commission has in determining how we exercise our franchise, in determining how we exercise suffrage in this country is unbelievable. It's extraordinary power that he has. The challenge that we've had is that very often when we've looked at access to information in respect of these matters, we've not taken that to mean access to information so that we can treat the Electoral Commission like we treat all other constitutional bodies we are extremely tolerant. For instance, if all of a sudden the government was to say that, you know, the amount of food that I spend during the pandemic, the amount of money that I spend during the pandemic buying food, I don't think, I mean, you are entitled to know how much until I'm audited. So, you, you, know, you can wait till you get the audited report in three years. Most of us will be up in house. Why do we tolerate such degrees of disinformation in some instances? And I'll prove that in a moment but also complete and abject lack of information when it comes to electoral commission. We seem particularly tolerant when it comes to electoral commission. And we don't seem to understand that as an instrument of power for the establishment and as a a body that exercises power, it deserves the same degree of accountability as all the other bodies. If you think of a voter and you consider the voter's decision-making process, from the time that it starts to hear about the options that are available to it, all the way to the time that it actually casts the ballot. At every seminal moment, there is a role that the Electoral Commission has to play. First of all, by making sure that the candidates that present themselves, then the parties that often these individuals are using as vehicles are in are operating in accordance with law. So the Electoral Commission is an a regulatory agency, no different from all the other regulatory agencies. And their duty to make sure that conformance and not just, you know, procedural or nominal conformance, but substantive conformance with the law is a short. That is a lot of technocratic power, but it also has effect on who can stand elections. You remember the challenges that we saw last cycle when the decision was made to disqualify some candidates from standing? Because they were not favorites of ours, because they were not party that most of us would vote for, the elite in this country made almost no effort to understand the basis that went into the decision making. But we disqualify people from standing for office and for those people for whom those people were, their, their choices, they were denied. Having taken that into account, then we need to say, okay, if this is just like any other instrument of power for the elite, then what is the traditional way of understanding true participation by the citizen? So i going all the way back to 1969, Ansteyan had this famous ladder of citizen participation. That starts all the way from manipulation to true citizen control. Those of you that are also students of Gramsci are aware of the very famous notion that very often cohesion can be branded as consent, particularly when options are removed. So in that regard, we have to move from noting that, or from pretending that information, which is the third level of the ladder, is some strong concession made by the elite to citizens. It is not. Information, which is step three, is extremely low on the ladder. Needs to get to a level of delegated power and citizen control before we are at the point where we can say that we have an Electoral Commission that responds to citizen power. So my question is, what is citizen power in this regard? And this brings the case study issue that you mentioned. Imani wanted information around how the Electoral Commission spends money. Now, why is that important? It was important because it was not just information about how it spends money, but how the spending decisions influence the exact technical dynamics of the election, what kind of machines, how are the machines going to behave, whether we are going to have biometric, whether or not there'll be failure of the biometric system and therefore people cannot vote because the biometric system is not functioning. None of these stuff is trivial. They go to the very heart of the democratic project. Now we went to them and said, we think that when we look at how you've spent money for the last decade and a half, there are procedural problems with that. But more importantly, we are beginning to think that you're becoming substantively unaccountable. We have a situation where elections in Ghana cost more than four times what they cost in the United Kingdom. We have a situation where the cost per elector in Ghana is nearly $20 already. The cost per voter, which is a different dynamic, is around $13. If you're just looking at declared direct costs for the actual process, if you take the overall cost of the election, you find out that Ghana is in the region of about $25 per elector. Now, the argument we made is that for a country that has seen ten times, a tenfold increase in how much it costs the country for the individual voter to express their cost. So this is where I'm getting that number. In 2004, we, we spent, the, the, the country spent $2.3 to get every voter the right to elect someone. In 2016, we we're spending $25. By the end of this year, after they've gone through the process, we seen about $30. This is almost 15 times increase. Remember, this is not nominal, this is relational. Mm. The cost a uh, voter in relation. So it's not as if you say there's inflation or anything. This is not sensible. This is not rational. This is inexplicable. But the reason that is inexplicable, if the, vote, the electoral commission was genuinely accountable, it was treated like all the other organs of the democratic system, was treated like any other constitutional organ, it would not be able to get away with not explaining how exactly that came about. More than that, it will not have been able to create the conditions under which it is practically inauditable. Let me give you an example.
3: Yeah.
0: The electoral right. commission you has done, never. You would have done ten minutes in the next two minutes. Okay, I have thirty seconds. Is that okay. fine? That's okay. It will
2: not, if you if you re, if you take that into account, and you look at currently how the electoral commission spends money on the electoral process, and you go to this, you, you consider the situation that when request for information about how it is spending that money it's frequently ignored. Then we come to the very sobering thought that this has become the most unaccountable institution in Ghana today. It has never passed an asset audit. It has spent at the very least $250 million in the last two cycles, buying equipment that it's going to throw away. And nobody knows how it is treated the previous consignments of equipment today. I don't think we would do the same if this was about cars being purchased by the presidency or this were cars being purchased by parliament or judges. Why do we change our tune and why do we behave as if we don't care when it comes to equipment that is being used for elections?
0: Thank you, al Thank you. And uh, like I said earlier, uh, we will have Rhoda also uh, give us an idea of electoral information that they required as the CDD or CODEO, for the purposes of facilitating the work they do as stakeholders in the process and what difficulties they encountered in that regard. But I need to ask, uh, uh, Bright, the the issues that you raise, um, will they come under being denied information as a result of the pandemic or you are simply talking about the posture and attitude of the EC generally whether or not there is a pandemic. Uh, What do you say about the fact that before the EC began the whole process, it engaged with civil society, it also engaged with the media. So you are talking about a point of disagreement and not exactly not giving you access to information. Well, I think that as far as the pandemic is concerned, it merely provides us another
2: instance, it's merely a case study of the EC's traditional posture to sharing information. They said to us that they were going to implement um, social distancing, physical distancing and social distancing at the various um, electoral points. So the registration centers and what have you. And during that period, we had people go around and it was quite evident that they were not doing that. And they were not doing that by design. What do I mean by that? I mean that there was no one there particularly um, um, instructed to ensure that these rules were being observed. And if the EC indeed wanted to enforce those rules, they would have had someone there. Now the question was when this was put out, did the EC respond to why that was the case? We sent people around that found, for instance, that um, the guarantee forms had been pre-filled in many instances and were being handed over to people. Kodeo also saw what they then termed guarantee uh, contractors, guarantee contractors, and said so that in 21% of uh, registration stations, these people were operating in the open was any attempt made by the EC to respond to any of these things. So my argument would be that, as far as the pandemic is concerned, it's merely another context within which we can evaluate the EC's general posture accountability. So when you say that I'm going to help make sure that when you come and vote, you are not going to catch a disease, you know, uh, be infected. And then when I come over and I find out that those things don't exist, but I seem powerless as a citizen and I just queue up and get a, I get an infection and hopefully because we are lucky, I don't get severely ill. Is that evidence of citizen power? Because my argument is that all of this is about citizen power. We must devolve power from those who are formally entrusted with the power, because they are supposed to use it purely for our benefit. If that is the case, then citizen power will mean that when I come there that is not happening, I have a means to report, and if no action is taken to fix that police uh, registration station, so that social distancing is not observed, I will be told why. But the problem is I go there, and there's a huge uh, mass of people, and I'm forced to stay in the queue, regardless of the fact that it's clear there's no social distancing. It tells you a lot about my sense as a citizen of whether or not I have power to influence the EC to change their video or not. Pure information, where you just simply say that we'll do social distancing, there's no accountability. I don't consider that proper information. Like I said, on the ladder of participation, information is very low. We want citizen power and we don't see that reflected in the way that is posture, mm.
3: you
2: know two citizens
0: okay. currently
2: and as long as i've monitored uh, yes, but,
0: but, the, but the, just in, in some 30 seconds what's your response to this substantive question is yes. that you are raising issues of disagreements with the mm. electoral commission in the manner it went ahead with the various processes and not exactly that it did not make information available before during or even after the entire process no no to no actually consulted no. with uh, the cso's like imani africa and then also met with the media persons and so on to give out the information whether the quality of information or the content of the information was satisfactory mm. to you are issues you are raising but not <laughs> being denied being denied uh, with excuse of COVID. No, no,
2: what I'm saying is that the whole purpose of information should be to empower the citizen. Right. If you go to North Korea, there's information. Mm. Why do we call that propaganda? We call that propaganda because designed to manipulate. The lowest level of the participation ladder is manipulation. So some types of information are put out merely to manipulate. Information only benefits the citizen in a democracy if it increases the decentralization and devolution of power and increases the citizen power. So if I'm not getting information that empowers me, it's useless information. Information is not worth the bite in which it is transmitted. If it is not going to improve the democratic process in some way, or it is not part and parcel of how the civic discourse itself is being shaped. And the argument I'm making is that the civic discourse does not end with throwing some information out. So if you tell me that the social distancing because there's a pandemic and that information you've given to me, I need to be able to rely on that information to take decisions. And if I go, then I find out that I'm still at risk. I need to be able to hold you accountable because that information you provided to me was invalid information and useless information. So that's the point I'm trying to make, the distinction I'm trying to make. All
0: right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Can we hear from Rhoda now, uh, whether or not you had any challenges uh, accessing information as key stakeholders and uh, you'd had the challenge as a result or the excuse was covered (laughs) <laughs> or generally, you you didn't have information that you felt the ECE ought to have made available to facilitate what you had to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, we we've had some issues. I think generally, the we have a, a problem of, of institutions not being pro disclosure. So. They are quite suspicious about why you are asking um, asking for certain information. Uh, typically, we will ask for the polling station list because we will need that to draw a sample for polling, uh, a sample for observation. And so that is one typical request that we often made. Uh, the challenge is that sometimes you make this request, it takes it takes a long time. The information comes very late, and sometimes you probably have to resort to other means, maybe informal. Uh, means of reaching out to people, which is really not the best because you want to have information that is uh, official and information that is uh, authentic. So those are issues. There have been issues about the polling station um, results, for instance. In 2016, one of the reforms that the Electoral Commission adopted was to make sure that polling station uh, results are made available. But as of now, I mean, after that election, that didn't happen, they didn't make it available, what you have is just constituency level results for the presidential elections. If you are interested in doing any serious analysis of these results and, and, and some of the figures, you find yourself in a very difficult situation. Sometimes there are even very harmless information that really you want, you want access to. But somebody doesn't understand why you're asking for that information. They tell you they either don't have it. I mean, we've had to go through the pains of going to virtually 60 districts individually just because we wanted gender disaggregated uh, data on women, on people who had contested for, for district-level elections. And this is something that the commission could just easily get for you, but we had to decide they, they didn't have it. And so we had to go to the various districts that we were going to implement a project the district offices of the commission just to get all this information before we could eventually do what we have. Recently, I, I mean, we have had challenges with um, the audited accounts of the political parties. For instance, last year, the commission published that, um, the, I mean, they published accounts of the political parties, and then Citizen Ghana Movement um, and CDD Ghana and ODCRO, uh tried to uh, get access to this information to make some analysis of the kind of information that electoral the political parties are provided to the commission and i mean this was quite challenging uh, eventually when uh, payment had to be made i mean for each political party the the group had to make about 250 uh 240 cities and so if you wanted the accounts for all the political parties then you had to pay for all of them eventually when data was provided it was in a format that you virtually couldn't do much the team had to go through a whole process of scraping, making sure that the data was in a manner that could be um, analyzed. So these are challenges that we've had. I think one thing that I want to um, emphasize is the fact that um, the Electoral Commission, uh, more or less, sometimes feels so accountable to political parties than even the um, ordinary Ghanaians. So if they have got, gone to an IPAC, and they've reached a discussion, the commission feels the business is done. If if, if political parties want certain information, the party, the, the, the electoral commission, of course, for very uh, obvious reasons, is under pressure to provide that. But the average Ghanaian, the citizen, who ultimately the, the commission should be accountable to, uh, there's also that kind of challenge. The commission doesn't feel like they're accountable to you, and so you have to go through a process. So these are issues. I think right away is the issue of accountability. If institutions want to be, uh, we need institutions to be accountable, then of course, access to information is, is key. Recently in Nigeria, just around May, the Electoral Commission, INA just published um, a policy document on, on how it was going to conduct elections in a period of COVID, and it sort of provided detailed notes, information, as to what it was going to do at each phase of the process. It makes it easier for your stakeholders to understand what you are doing and why you are doing that and how you are going to do that in a period that we find ourselves, which is quite unusual. And so you can also track whether the commission is on doing what it has said or fulfilling what it has promised. But some of this information you don't know. Right now, there's quite a vacuum, even in terms of political activities. who is saying what about how political parties can conduct themselves there is there's, there's a ban on um, campaigning political activities may may happen but from what we are seeing um in uh, in recent times, in terms of the two leading presidential candidates virtually moving out. um, I think there's a gap in terms of the role of the regulatory agency, the Electoral Commission, in terms of what can be done and what cannot be done, so that citizens can also be following up on these issues. How can political parties reach out to uh, citizens with their messages, with their campaigns? So we are just not focusing on information that is coming from the Electoral Commission, but even from other actors like the political party. So these are issues that uh, we we should be also highlighting as we go forward with this conversation. All
0: right, uh, thank you, Rhoda. Um, I will I will get to the to Akoto Ampao on some of the issues that he has raised himself, and he's actually charged and sought to ask questions about how the uh, you know the NCC has, as it were enforce its mandate as regards ensuring uh, playing its part so that there is not this inequality of access to information. So uh, Madame Josephine Nkroma, you as the NCC in the lead up to the registration exercise were also out there in the public. And in fact, you had donations from churches by way of vehicles and so on to arguments your, your capacity, uh, facility capacity to be able to reach out to many people and educate and sensitize them. Did you have any difficulties in getting the needed information to pass on to the voters? Is it not clear that whilst the EC did a cluster system for all the 16 regions, we can see very clearly that voters rushed on the first day, phases, second phases, when they could have actually relaxed if they had been empowered with the information to wait their turn because of the classroom system. Hello,
3: Samson. Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. So, firstly, as we all know, the EC, sorry, the NCC structurally has district offices in every district across the country, mm. and likewise the EC. So, at that basic structure, there is the assumed um, collaboration between the two institutions. So, for the for the National Commission for Civic Education particularly in these times when we're already more or less preoccupied with the urgent and um, the urgent matters of COVID-19. There was a lot of pressure on us given the resources or the resource constraints that we had faced earlier. Thankfully we had um, some, some resource that augmented what we were doing but as you say Typically, when it came to voter registration, you had clusters of registration that were supposed to be ruled out. Nonetheless, in, at the early stages of voter registration, you saw a huge you know, um, crowding of people at registration centers trying to get registered. Um, some of the challenges that were encountered, of course, was that the, the, the information that, would have been, that was required in order to roll out as a commission in terms of disseminating this very relevant information for people to know when and where to vote was unavailable to the commission. So, in fact, by the time the information reached, reached us, the voting registration exercise, the voter registration exercise had already kick started nonetheless given the information that we had on the ground we also began to disseminate information in order to complement what the electoral commission was doing and reduce the overcrowding that we saw at the registration centers now for me the lessons learned from there is that as institutions that um, or that are key institutions that have relevant roles to play with a very important issue of elections and voting. It's important that there's better synergy in terms of collaboration, in terms of information availability on both sides, so that at the end of the day, the people that we serve benefit from what we do. So once you're not getting that effective collaboration, at the end of the day, it goes to disempower the, road, the, the citizen. Because you would have instances where somebody says, because of the COVID pandemic and because of the crowding that I've seen, I'm not at all going to register. I'd mm-hmm. rather stay home and stay safe. And that really is institutions disenfranchising the citizenry from exercising the right to vote, and, and, and as well disenfranchising them from actually con, um, participating in elections. So as I said- My question respect
0: respect to that specific is, <clears throat> isn't that clear evidence of some bad job or some job that had not been done by way of information, availability and accessibility by the public? Because if people had, you know, full knowledge of how this was to be done, they would not have rushed, trooped, massed up on the first faces, first days, uh put themselves in harm's way of contacting COVID nineteen when they would have been, uh, they would have uh, had their turn. You were on the field doing the broadcast with your vehicles and all of that. So, is is that not a clear evidence that? somewhat the the voter engagement was not as required
3: yes so so i do concede at that at that initial stages or in fact prior to the voter registration exercise itself Mm. the information that was necessary to ensure inclusivity was not adequate enough to provide that kind of inclusivity so it's really what led to what some people saw and others then said, well, I'm not going to vote if this is what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, I think towards the end of the registration exercise, things were more streamlined and then we had a great number of people participating in the voter registration exercise. For me, as I said, the key lesson is to have greater collaboration mm-hmm. More synergy between these two institutions that assures us that the way we roll out our mandates is for the benefit of the citizen, so that the citizen in a, can exercise his or her um, rights in a manner that does not compromise their safety or that security, and also ensures that what it takes to facilitate the exercise of that right is properly done by us, for them to also exercise that right. Well, All right
1: can add to that. Yes, quickly.
3: Yes. I think that the
1: issue, um, just to raised is very important. This is, for the past nine years or so that I've been part of these processes, This issue of institutional collaboration keeps coming up all the time at various meetings. How can the NCC support the work of the Electoral Commission? We understand that voter education, of course, is is a key mandate of the Electoral Commission, but where institutions like the NCC can support, and all they need is the right kind of information, because they cannot determine where voting is Going to take place. It's only the electoral commission that can determine. They cannot tell whether the registration is going to be a cluster system or not. It is the electoral commission that can can determine that. These are institutions that are sitting physically just next to each other, yes. and 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 yet there's always that kind of gap. And meeting upon meeting, where you have these institutions represented, this issue keeps coming up. And only for us. So I think these are real issues that we need to really set up. Otherwise, we keep coming back to the table. All
0: right, thank you, Rola. Now I'm coming to uh, Mr. Kutambao. In in the in the regime of the RTI Act, Act 989, is it is it surprising to you that? there is some difficulty in accessing even very critical information like electoral information at critical times going into the 2020 elections. Um, The example of the Ashaiman MP, NX Henry Norway, he sought procurement information from the electoral commission about the uh registration exercise that just ended he was denied it took the high court on a human rights application to compel the electoral commission to give him that information but at the cost of a thousand five hundred ghana cities you know i'm wondering whether you think these these kind of things will even discourage voters, or members of the public who genuinely seek information regarding the elections and what can be done?
4: Um, Samson, uh, I can tell you that I'm not surprised, although I find this example highly unsatisfactory. And I think that it is connected with the concerns raised by Rights and also Rhoda. Uh, you see, the, the attitude of people who are vested with power, there's a cultural and political foundation in Ghana. When people are vested with power, they somehow think they have no responsibility to the citizens. And this becomes more the case. When you have a provision in the Constitution which says that that body uh, in its functions and activities is independent and cannot be subject to the direction or whatever of any other power or authority. Then because of the cultural frame by which power is exercised, this, this 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 important constitutional provision that seeks to ensure that they are independent in order to carry out their functions in a way that advances the interests of the people and promotes justice, equality, and fairness, is then assumed to mean that they are free to do anything that they want and nobody can question them. It is a very, very fundamental problem that we face. And I think that part of the way out is to begin to encourage the creation of platforms for conversation. The EC is a key player in all these matters connected with the elections. It must understand that the question of elections it's not its monopoly. At the base of elections are the people of Ghana. They own the elections. And so any organization or public institution or semi-public institutions like the parties are accountable and responsible to the people of Ghana. And, 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 and it is from that framework that the EC ought to be encouraged. In various ways, to see that it has a duty to collaborate with other institutions who are also in that space mm. to ensure effective utilization of limited resources that we have, and also to ensure that you know um, we share we share responsibilities we provide enough information across different spaces so that when different organizations are working, they are working towards a common objective. Mm. I think it is very critical. And I have in my notes, even before this discussion, that it is key to encourage a spirit and culture of partnership and collaboration, partnership and collaboration between the EC, the the NCCE and civil society organizations, because they are also key stakeholders, civil society organizations and the political parties. So so I, I think that we need to find ways, effective ways of engaging the EC so that they can move away from this sense that they are independent and autonomous. Mm-hmm. Nobody can right. do any, uh, give them anything. No, that is not the thing. But right. we need engagement to arrive
0: at that point. Right. Now, Elia, you mentioned, you mentioned the issue of um, uh, inequality of access. Yes. How are we able to tell whether there is an urban-rural divide in how voter information can be accessed? Because I I gather that is what you were seeking to suggest. Absolutely. And and what are are the factually, what are the structural inequalities that affect voter access to information? Fundamental is language. Language is so
4: fundamental, and somehow, as a nation, we continue to underestimate its force and power, its capacity to empower people. Many Ghanaians, even in, in, in urban communities and especially in our rural communities, understand only our national languages. And where it comes to issues of elections and accountability, they can best enforce their sovereignty if they are engaged in national language. But all these these, um, regular now let the citizen know platform, for instance, it's all in Mm -hmm. English. What happens to the people in the rural communities? What happens to people who don't understand English, whether they are living in rural or urban communities? What devices do we have of getting this information? uh, How do you call it? Uh, transmitted okay. transmitted to them not only in in, in 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 written uh translations but verbal you know uh translations yeah,
0: but sir, is, a it ver- not, is it not a given is it not a given that the electoral commission does this uh, let the citizens know you know regular uh, press engagement it does it with the media therefore the media you have english media you have local language media all attending and they yes. transmit in the various you know languages so can that not be said to be that this is how it gets the information gets to everybody okay hello bisampal i think i think we have a, a bit of a technical problem with... Uh...
3: If I may come in. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so to that extent, as you rightfully said, the, let the citizens know is really a media platform, and then um, the media with the kind of networking that we have today across the country, able to transmit and translate this very practical information across the country. But also important to note that as a commission like the NCCE, such information is what we use to engage in the districts using the local dialect. So it's Mm -hmm. important that whoever is in our district understands the dialect. But I think um, in relation even to the media and um, to both traditional and new media and the role or the impact of the pandemic that for NCCE has our strategies, limited it to some extent, mm. but also um, exposed the lack of technological expansion in some geographical locations that um, people just take for granted that, okay, we're going to use the media, be it new or traditional media, and it's going to go everywhere. That for me is of critical concern now. All right. access to information has mm. been limited now by the fact that we are relying more on media, but to the extent that depending on your, depending on your geographical location, you may not necessarily even have access to that media in order to get the critical information you need is something that we should be looking at. So All right. For, Thank
0: you. right. Oh. Okay. Now, Bright, um, from where you sit, the, the voter engagement in elections, um, how politi- political actors have traditionally engaged the voters? Are there changing trends? I obviously might be an obvious question to ask. How <laughs> has the voter engagement evolved since independence uh, till now?
2: Before I answer that, can I quickly point out that the point um, that um, Mr. Agutong was making about our culture was very profound. Right. We, we very often look at the legal and the constitutional architecture, but that's merely the skeleton, right? The flesh and the sinew and the nerves of the overall system is made up of the political culture. It is what plugs the gaps. And so when we have situations where we have what I call civic arbitrage, if you want this to go to the courts or the auditor general is responsible or whatever, when we have that kind of thinking, become enculturated. So people think that that's actually how it ought to work. Then we get into a serious cultural atrophy as far as politics is concerned. So we 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 kind of think, oh, okay, this is the body that has been legally mandated. This is the body that, you know, this is what the law says. And we forget that in reality, Those things are merely the skeletal framework within which the real culture of politics and civic participation and democracy take flesh and form. And I think that general concern I have where people tend to think everything has been institutionalized in that manner and forget Mm. about the practices, the cultural modes of behavior is very critical. Let me give you a very quick example and I'll answer your question about voter engagement. If you take the National Commission for Civic Education, officially supposed to be the body that is mandated to ensure that citizen education, you know, is fully um, undertaken. It's operational budget. You know, if you take away the um, employee and the compensation part of it, and you go to the operational budget, you are talking of something in the region about seven million dollar cities when last I checked. Now, if you take the budget of the EC for fuel, for publicity, not publicity so fuel for publicity. It's almost 5 Ghana CDs over the last couple of cycles. Hmm. So it doesn't matter that it says that the NCC is responsible for civic education. It's almost irrelevant. When it comes to electoral education in this country, the body that has the actual capacity to invest in ensuring that that is done is the EC. And to the extent that I cannot get to understand why the EC spends the money that it spends when it comes to the agencies that it employs. So it has a whole PR unit, but it also spends a huge amount of money on a whole range of consultants, a whole range of PR agencies. I think at last count, I was counting about six different private sector engagements in relation to public relations. If you ignore that fact, and you say because the architecture in the way that is so designed, this is how it's supposed to be, you lose the essence. And I think we should go back to essence. As far as your direct question is concerned
0: about, but but briefly, uh, very quickly on that one, if the EC engages such a broad range for mm-hmm. the purposes of publicity, um, mm-hmm. would you then say that it is engaged in proactive disclosure of information? I, I think that we have a tendency also in this
2: country of being input oriented and not being output and outcome oriented, sorry being input and output oriented and not being sufficiently outcome-oriented. So if it turns out that they spend almost five million on full for publicity, and we don't get the results that we deserve. For instance, you mentioned this issue around how we are not able to get accountability from them because the information that is necessary to regulate their own power, they have no self-interest to disclose. Mm. Then we have to ask ourselves, whether all those investments we are making it's in our own interest. Because it's very easy for us to finance the interests of the EC, you know that. I think people often forget that every institution is made up of human beings. And that in that respect, they have. They have it, over time, the institution develops three levels of interest. It also develops three levels of purpose. So they have a purpose which is institutionally defined. And they have the purpose which the leaders of that organization presumes is the institutional true purpose. So for instance, in Ghana, the EC wants to have a lot of respect from the political parties, because that is how, from a result their point of view, it justifies its purpose. And we have the third level of purpose, which is the individuals that have power in that institution and the purpose that they truly have. And so my point would be that, if we invest investing all of these amounts of money in there, we have to ask which purpose is being served. Is it the institutional purpose? Is it the higher purpose? Or is it the individual purposes? Mm. And until we are much more, I will not say cynical, but much more sceptical, professionally sceptical about how we evaluate these things. I don't think we're getting the right um, kinds of analysis that ought to be ought to be done. I'll
0: okay. very quickly the, touch on the of voter uh, engagement in one minute.
2: I think social media has redefined the way in which the electorate is able to judge whether or not the information that they have in mainstream media is sufficiently reflective of the facts on the ground. But then we're now in the second phase of what is often called the information entropy trap. And that is that there's so much information now that the role of curation becomes very critical. If you have a cultural dynamic around curation not having ever been very critical, because in the past, the media was used to curation being um, um, conventional in the sense that, okay, we get some press release. We will kind a little bit on it and move forward. As opposed to investigative journalism, analytical journalism, being the traditional mode of practicing journalism, then we get into trouble because the media is unable to play its creation role. And because there's so much raw information out there, you move into the realm of informa- misinformation and manipulation. So the question that we, I will have is what is the creation model of our demo- uh, media practice? Uh, do we have a media that is extremely creative in the practice of journalism? Or do you have a media that sees itself as
0: primarily a transmission belt for information? I think that is the question that we have. Right. Um, just for Josephine Nkrumah, what, what do you say um, about the changing trends and how uh, impactful or effective that can be? We know that because of the pandemic, uh, for example, by Executive Instrument 134, uh, political rallies were banned but political party activities were allowed subject to the strict, uh, strict adherence to uh, the enhanced COVID-19 protocols uh, including uh, having not more than uh, 100 participants now um, you have to wear your face mask and ensure all the fiscal distancing uh, among the rest how does this impact on voter engagement how can the political actors adapt to the reality of the pandemic?
3: Thank you, Samson. So indeed, um, COVID-19 has changed the face of engaging um, the voter. Um, typically, we are not we are not seeing um, the rallies that we, we would have seen um, before COVID-19. Um, nonetheless, it means that engagement. Has been more focused on smaller groupings, so in a certain, to a certain extent, what that means is um, there's going to be more legwork on the ground to reach a great number of people to engage them. You'd have to be meeting smaller people, and that takes a longer duration. It most likely takes even more. Um, for want of a better word, foot soldiers to be on the ground engaging um, the citizens. And that even affects the National Commission for Civic Education in terms of our our, our, um, strategies for engagement. Um, Having said that, in 2016, one of the issues that was raised by the EU in their report regarding rallies, for instance, had to do with the fact that at rallies, you saw a, 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 lot, of, um, um, a lot of activity of vigilante groups. So to the extent that we are talking about the, 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 the prohibition of political rallies or party rallies, it means that we may see a reduction in that kind of activity. When it comes to political rallies, having said that, it means we should be doing more of um, public announcements using our public address systems mounted on vehicles. It means we should be doing a lot more of media engagement, new and traditional media. And as I said earlier, whilst we've stepped up engagement in this regard, we must not overlook the fact that it is not accessible. To every citizen of Ghana, so what we 've done is to look out for the geographical locations where there's very limited media, if at all, and seek to engage at that level more using more the traditional approaches that we used, a lot of, um, a lot more community engagement whilst adhering to the protocols. Of course, we have to be, we have to also ensure that at all times We are masked, we have the necessary um, equipment that protects us so that we do not encounter any potential spread of of, of the virus. So these are the challenges that we have, but on the flip side too, you would see that where you have to engage smaller groups, it deepens the discussion, deepens the understanding, opens up the space for Politicians who are campaigning on that much to better explain themselves to be properly interrogated and to allow for the for citizens who have heard them to make an informed choice this time it is no longer going to be sh- standing on big platforms and shouting how many um, things you're going to build what you're going to do here and there without the citizenry actually speaking to you and engaging you to understand how you propose to do these things.
1: Mm-hmm. For the National
3: Commission for Civic Education, where we use our flagship and research document, matters of concern to the Ghanaian citizen. Of course, this year, it's been delayed because we're preoccupied with COVID-related matters. But this also opens up the discussion in a manner where it becomes more issues-focused for politicians to then address matters that really, you know, speak to the heart of Ghanaians rather than, you know, the rhetoric that we usually hear.
0: All right. Um, Let's get... uh... Mr. Akutempa on this uh, questioning of the new trends. And because of COVID-19, clearly um, the, until, until the last few days or the last you know, couple of weeks, we know that the political activity voter engagement has been uh, on you know, virtual platforms, more particularly. And to some extent, as uh, Madame Josephine Kruma stated, person to person engagement because of the restrictions. Now, within this period, the president has had the opportunity of his regular TV and radio broadcasts to reach out to citizens about COVID. He's done 15 so far. Um, there's been the suggestion that he's taking advantage of that uh, to also serve his you know, partisan political end um what what would you say will there be a constitutional question including access or equality of coverage by the state-owned media to the opposition as well because anytime the opposition has had to engage the the public within the period it has to buy air time and it may not be able to afford as much Yes, Mr. Akutapa. I'm saying that this is
4: a particularly difficult and tricky issue.
0: Right.
4: Um, because <laughs> um, as, as president of the republic, he has certain obligations and functions as president to perform uh, to meet the expectations of the of the, of the, of the public. And uh Certainly, in a, a a crisis of the scale and nature of the pandemic, uh, leadership is important in guiding uh, the nation and citizens as to how we as one people fight and successfully overcome the pandemic exactly so so. In performing that function, you can't, you can't say that, no, you can't do that. Because that, that is precisely his constitutional mandate as president. Uh, that, of course, exposes or enables somebody who has a Machiavellian attitude to abuse it, you know. Uh, in general, I I think that the focus of the... Of 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 these um, engagements with the public uh, has been towards the collective fight against the pandemic. Naturally, there are political uh, what spillovers. It it promotes (laughs) his image and that kind of stuff, but uh, you you can hardly avoid that Mm. if he opens up that platform and starts to make. Directly MPP propaganda, then clearly there's a problem. Just as if uh, people go to uh, MPP platform, uh, what uh, rallies in the past with vehicles fueled, state vehicles fueled by you know state resources and so on, there's a problem. Mm. So I, I, I think that we need to keep a close look, uh, what uh, observation. Of what the president does on those um, uh, platforms and where he's stepping out of line, we need to bring him to order. But, Samson, there's an important matter that I I need to draw attention to.
0: Okay, just in one minute. Yes,
4: yes, which is that when we did the registration, we did it in clusters. That's right. Now, come voting day, people are not going to go and vote where they registered. So there's a huge communication and logistical question. How do people identify where their names will be when they are are registered? I know that there will be the exhibition. But how does the process of exhibition lead people to locate where they will be voting?
0: Okay.
1: This is an area
4: that needs mm. massive education right from today. Right. Right from today, between the uh, the EC, the NCC, and other stakeholders, civil society, and the media. Mm. Otherwise, there is going to be chaos
0: and confusion mm. on election day. It thank is a huge matter. You. Thank,
4: thank you for raising address.
0: this. Uh, thank you for raising this and uh, and raising it at this time. And uh, just to remind all of you that this is the University of Ghana School of Law, Law in Crisis series. And we are talking about access to electoral information and voter engagement under the specter of pandemics. Um, if uh, you have a question and you are in a position to ask the question live, please use the raise, raise hand button. Uh, we will lace with you uh, individually and get you to ask the question by yourself. I have a number of questions that you've already uh, fielded and I will get our uh, guests to answer uh, those questions uh, for you. Uh, but before I get to have you uh, maybe in a minute each, uh, talk to us about the pathways to reform, how uh, voter engagement might be effectively done under COVID and what perhaps needs to change, uh, I'd like to uh, hear if uh, Bright Simmons can say uh, a couple of uh, minutes on this uh, uh, question that I posed to uh, Mr. Akuto Ampa. Now, in his uh, 15th broadcast, which is the last one he did, the president actually removed the 100 participants limits on public gatherings how should voter engagement be done while avoiding the risk of the spread? And the question that we ask, is there some inequality and a possible constitutional question with the president's unfettered access to the broadcast media as against opposition if he's seen and heard? And we have heard him on one or two occasions take advantage of that broadcast platform to reply and speak to the opposition?
2: No, I don't, I don't, have, I don't, I don't have any um, concerns um, at all about the president's access to the broadcast media because I believe the real issue is the editorial function of these um, channels. If the media was to be minded to exercise that editorial function properly, then they will treat the address with the same um, you know, yardstick that any type of communication from a political leader ought to be measured with. So if the president you know, comes online regularly and all he does is to champion his political interest, you are not duty-bound. Duty bound. There's no law in Ghana that forces any media organization to carry the content. Secondly, you have the right to have commentators in the room who will comment on what the president has said in order to ensure that if you feel that he's abusing your medium, um, he's getting free access to uh, the airwaves to purely pursue propagandistic um, objectives, you have the means to filter that. And I think the media has to exercise editorial uh, power much more effectively on behalf of citizens. But I have no concern whatsoever. If there are problems with the way that it's being conducted, it's entirely the fault of editors who don't seem to recognize the power that they have. Right. On the second issue, uh, which is, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, um, you were concerned about, um, sorry, can you just remind me again of the second? Yes, level exactly. of how,
0: how, how might voter engagement be effectively done under the circumstance? What should change? I am not too sure when I look at the
2: current situation that the constraints which were evident at the beginning of the pandemic are very much still with us. I mean, as far as I can see, um, there is a vibrant discourse that is going on in respect of the upcoming elections. I don't see that the pandemic at this stage is the major constraint. I mean, as far as I can see, door-to-door campaigning, which was one of those that you know those methods that were not very widely used, it's kind of rampant. And now the question then becomes, if it's being done within the law and if it's being done within the context of public health regulations, um, and we cannot do much about that, then I I don't see the constraints from a communications point of view. Mm -hmm. Maybe the question we ought to be asking is whether, given how lax we are now, there is a risk of potential upset of infection, but that's a different framing of the pro- of the problem. So I don't see a constraint currently on communications, as right. far as I can see. I'm just observing reality. Right. But we have a, we can have a, we can have a, a genuine concern. Mm. Whether given how we become very lax about the regulations, the, health, the public health regulations, we could potentially, as a result of the upcoming campaign season, mm. see a significant surge in infection. But that'll be a complete different discussion
0: altogether. Okay. Uh, now, Rhoda, uh, definitely, we have seen that the rallies are beginning to uh, resume. Uh, the president is going, uh, you know, touring parts of the country and meeting crowds. We have opposition, you know, leaders who are also touring parts of the country and meeting crowds. Mm-hmm. Uh, that notwithstanding, we know that whatever is going on, uh, is going on under setting restraints and restrictions. Do you have any fears that this will result in little voter engagement and that may have implications on how a voter is informed going into December uh, 7?
1: Yeah, I mean, if if you look at um, the way in which political campaigns have been conducted, rallies have been a major part of it. Parties are launching their manifestos. The NPP has come out. Um, Many of us uh, on this conversation already have that manifesto. In my community, in my hometown, does the average person have this manifesto? Rallies were typically the platforms that provided the opportunity for parliamentary candidates or political parties to really bring home their messages closer to the people. So to the extent that these are uh, currently not possible, there might be some constraints on, on the nature of engagement, the nature of information that the average voter is getting. For those who have been looking at the issue of the structural differences, for the highly educated and all uh, those who are uh, online, you may probably talk even about information overload. There's so much that you are getting from the electoral commission to some extent uh, and from other bodies. But for the person who who is is, is offline and the person who might not be illiterate, what, what how are they able to come to terms with what the real issues are so something might be missing and that's why i think it's important that government and the electoral commission they they, they set some kind of parameters with some more clarification as to what can be done at this stage and what cannot be done as it is it's like the parties i mean the political leaders are doing what they feel is is allowed sometimes I, i i observe some of the videos some i watch some of the videos And I'm like, really, is this how we are going to carry on? We need to be clear. If there are guidelines as to what parties can do within this period or cannot do, it will be better so that they know they are going for it or they are not. And these are the other ways in which they are going to complement their campaigning activities. There's also the opportunity of the national media uh, platforms like the state broadcaster um, to make the opportunity available to their parties to bring on their messages. So I think that is one opportunity that the, the state media also has to make available. In right. 2016, the, um, some monitoring work by the media commission showed that there were unequal access. The ruling party had more access, about 35%, whereas the opposition had about 25%. These are issues that we need to address so that that those platforms um, by the state broadcaster can be used effectively to engage a lot more voters. And of course, that's also one major mechanisms of mechanism for breaching that uh, gap between, I mean, the language barrier issue, for instance, okay. because the state broadcaster can can try and find programs uh, in different languages. So I think we the opportunities, uh, there are challenges, but um, we have to really uh, have a broader framework in terms of how thank, we do it you, from that Thank you, Rhoda.
0: And, and uh, as we as we wrap up, but I'll get a couple of questions from our audience to you. Uh, and I need to remind you also that uh, this uh, event is uh, supported by Star Foundation, Star Ghana Foundation, and it's available as a podcast on Spotify and Apple, as well as Google. Um, now, ma- ma- Madame Kruma, what do you think we should be thinking into the future? Uh, we have coronavirus. We never anticipated that it could, you know, dislocate. It could just, you know decimate everything the way it has done. Um, looking into the future, you, you never know. There could be some other thing that may not give us the opportunity to you know, gather around, to register, and to vote. What should we be thinking about?
3: Yeah, I think that the coronavirus really exposes um, to some extent, um, let me use the word weaknesses advisedly, the weaknesses that we have in our, in our, in our institutions, um, in the kinds of collaboration that we should be having, in the kind of technological expansions that we should be looking at, in how we address issues regarding um, language barriers and all of that. Going into the future, this for me is a dress we And I hope that it can only get better in terms of the kinds of innovations that we put in place in order to address these things. I mean, if we decided for a a country like Ghana, we could not even attempt to say, are we going to suspend elections? Because there is no clear constitutional provision that deals with such matters. So for me, these are some of the, the, the issues that we should also be addressing. What happens if these things come into place? How do we develop more resilient institutions? How do we become more innovative in these approaches? And what kinds of constitutional provisions do we put in place in such unforeseen circumstances? These, for me, are the critical matters that we should be looking at, the requisite building blocks that we must have in place that addresses and issues of pandemics, and God knows what else might come our way. But I think it's building more resilience. And if I may quickly just add, mm. one of the innovations that we saw during the voter registration was you saw political party agents actually taking down numbers of voters and, and registered voters. Mm. And uh, there was some discussion ongoing as to why they were taking down these numbers. And as it turned out, for some of the parties, this is one way they would use to reach the citizenry, mm. calling out voters and speaking to them. So these are the kinds of innovations that are evolving in are And I think that if we begin to think more and more outside the box, and, we be- and I cannot stress enough the importance of the collaboration amongst institutions and equitable resourcing of the institutions, and right. um, you see the kind of comparisons in budgets and you see how um, limited one, one institution's budget is as against the other. And these yeah. are all the critical yeah. things that we need to look at. Right. Thank you very much.
0: Right. All right. So um, related to this is a question, and I'll pose that to Bright Simmons. Imoru um, Isahaku Genjeng is asking, what do we need to put in place before we can do electronic voting? Or what is preventing us, Ghana, from doing electronic voting, which is less expensive and more convenient? Bright.
2: I don't think that, um, from a technology governance point of view, we have the right institutional climate to attend electronic voting because first of all, we have to benchmark that against other attempts to reform the electoral system to improve equitable access, to improve convenience, etc., which have not happened. If you look at continuous registration as an example, people are supposed to be able to continue, uh, go to the district offices throughout the year and register. And yet we know that there are major constraints in the ability of the electoral commission to allow that to happen because apparently we can't seem to agree on how to resource political parties to observe that process. And if we cannot do something that simple because of lack of trust, then I'm not sure electronic voting is something we want to get involved um, with at all. Take the representation of the People's Act where the law enjoins that something be done. Um, And because we cannot get trust in place, we cannot simply build the various governance mechanisms that are necessary We've just simply decided we're not going to allow Ghanaians that are overseas to vote. We had a problem with um, with prisoners not being allowed to vote until courts had to instruct them that that be done. So I think we need to not assume that technology is some kind of silver bullet and that can simply, you know, be adopted and all of a sudden all of these problems will disappear. As far as I'm concerned, we need to improve the institutional climate. Trust has to improve, and that requires governance. So I will start off by saying. Can we create a mechanism by which some degree of transparency, accountability, and the rest of it is brought to bear on the existing technology infrastructure that exists, uh, sorry, that is uh, implicated in our elections? Mm. We have basic questions to ask. What happens to BVRs that Mm. are disposed of? If the EC cannot tell us such a simple question, how will we create an auditing framework for electronic voting that is genuinely transparent, genuinely accountable. So I think the number one thing we'll have to put in place some kind of operational and technological governance framework such that CSOs, political parties, chiefs and, people, and the peoples of, of Ghana and their various uh, native representations are all genuinely involved in the way that we govern the technology process and um, going forward. I think that would be the first point. And it will also be the starting point. Because without that in place, I think we will get into serious trouble if you attempt anything like electronic voting.
0: Right. Now, uh, Mr. Oksanpao, there's a question from Colonel Fester Sabuaje, retired. Uh, He is asking, Pest 1 to Act 574, 2000. Why has the EC failed or reneged on its statutory mandate to ensure that political parties submit written declarations on all their assets and expenditure including contributions or donations in cash or in kind what should be done to rectify this blatant violation of the law by political parties and i put the question to you because you uh, actually flagged this in your presentation but you flagged it in in a way that I have never thought about, that beyond the poli- uh, EC accounting towards how the political parties are being transparent, there is also the need for the parties to account to their members. But this is kind of a just question as regards the political parties law. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, I, th- I think that,
4: that this is a very crucial issue about deepening our democratic system of governance. The the fact that the political parties do not comply with some of the fundamental obligations they have under the law that establishes them, and they continue to get away with it every year, shows very deep institutional weakness. And the EC must be held responsible for that however it is equally important that citizens take up the matter and compare both ec and the parties to comply with the law i think that that's that's an the, e, the ec may be empowered to do that if it can see that it has a lot of public popular support in getting this accountability mechanism working, you know. So yes, the EC has failed. It has no excuse under the law for its failure, because when it uses it, it assess its independence of action. So if it is as independent as it it makes us think it is, then obviously it should enforce, comply with, and enforce the powers that the law has given it. Right. And this is critical say, in ensuring say. accountability of our parties.
0: You say if they don't do it, citizens must demand and insist on that. We have the Citizen Ghana Movement yes, that sir. went to court, and the courts, Justice Anthony Boa, sitting in the Human Rights High Court, compelled the EC to comply with the dictates of uh, this uh, particular uh, provision of the law requiring that, and I'm referring uh, specifically to the requirement as stated by, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, which the law says it is supposed to, within six months, the electoral commission, within six months from the 31st of December of each year, have the political parties to account, indicating the state of the accounts, sources of their funds, paid membership dues, audited accounts, you know, among others. And they don't get to do it. What else can be done?
4: Well, if, if the court directs the EC to comply with this, Uh, the request for information, and the EC has refused to grant it. The, The EC can be cited for contempt of court. That's one way of dealing with the matter. But it seems to me that this is a big political matter, and it needs citizens to make it an issue, to convene conversations around this matter involving the EC itself, the NCCE, because I think it's implicated here, and right. also the political parties and CSOs, so mm. that we deal with this matter, you know. Right. This is a, it's, it's both a legal and a political problem, and it must be dealt with both legally and through a political process,
0: mm. it, it is interesting that anytime I read this part of the law, uh, whose sanction is that if a political party is found guilty of it, um you know is looking to pay in excess of uh you know is paying millions millions of ghana cities for breaching this millions population. yes 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 anyway right now absolutely th- there's a question directed to uh madame josephine Kroma uh that uh, could the restrictions of the ec giving out the data be as a result of data policy um if that is what it is Uh, What measures have organizations and institutions like the NCC put in place to make sure that the privacy of individuals' data are protected? This is from uh, Vera, Vera Haibo.
3: Thank you very much, Vera. Um, I think um, the Data Protection Act enjoins all of us to, to protect data that comes into our, our custody and and to that extent where for instance the national commission for civic education has paid its um, dues or its fees for data protection we are enjoined by law to maintain that to, to um, keep that data private but in this specific question that was in relation to clusters that kind of information i I'm wondering what kind of data protection is required here. In actual fact, in this particular instance, you require to roll out to to provide that data in order for people to exercise their rights. And to the extent that that data is not available, I don't see how you can plead issues of data protection.
0: Would uh, would Akutempa have anything to say about this? Yes, Mr. Akutalpao, would you have anything to say about this? That perhaps restricting the... Oh, yes. Yeah, go ahead. No, I I think
4: my understanding of, uh, is it, Rhoda's um, example was in reference to general information about the number of women who voted uh, and that kind of stuff. That kind of information does not violate any data protection law, you know. If we want to know how many people voted here, uh, the, the, the gender agents and so on, differentials, this is information that the EC should provide so that it can facilitate research and research fundings, and which will feed back into political education and organization. Mm. even for the parties, for the political parties themselves. So right. I, I think that to raise the specter of data, data protection law here is totally out of place. You know. And it really has to do with a certain fear of releasing information that public institutions over the years have, that if they release information and the public gets to know how things are around, they can be exposed. Mm. So, their, their default reaction to any request for information is to find ways of refusing it. And that is the significance of the right to information law, which mm. all citizens should be encouraged to make use of as a tool of transparency and accountability. All right.
2: I think that sometimes we are a bit too generous. If we assume that the attitude of the, these bodies, these you know, political organisations and institutions, are primarily precautionary, I think that it's much more organised um, than we think. So, for instance, the EC happily entered into an agreement with a private company, uh, whereby the private company was able to plug in um, some kind of API, so that if you go to the bank and you have an ID card, your voter ID card, the bank is able to validate the ID card. And they did it for a number of years until this matter attracted some controversy. Now the question is, why would they happily do that and not give to um, Roda information that is relevant for accountability? They will not do that because they think they own the information. Mm. Typically, our posture in these countries, people think information is an asset that enhances their power. And therefore, if I have the information, you don't have the information. It completely disorients your capacity to hold me to account, which is one level. But it also establishes my status. The fact that I have that information. We know in this country, there are people that operate in the media, for instance, who tout their ability to access information, not in respect of their ability to do their job, but in ability to establish their stature. So I'm very careful about not assuming that this is purely innocuous um, and you know they are being precautionary in their posture. I think it's a very important element of the power play.
4: Mm-hmm. They,
2: they have the information you don't, and that reminds you that they are in charge. I think that is a very important aspect of it as well. Because right. when they, they, they can use that information to mm-hmm. reinforce their status, they go ahead and they, they give it, or if they are uh, commercial, mm-hmm. their commercial reasons. To disclose
0: that they do. All right, and uh, this is to remind you once again that this uh, event, uh, which is the University of Ghana School of Law's uh, Law in Crisis series uh, today, uh, focusing on access to electoral information and voter engagement under the specter of pandemics, is.
4: Sorry, we can't hear you.
3: Seem to have lost something. Perhaps, um, Oliver,
0: you'd like to something. We are lost. I think I just got back. Uh, thank you very much. Our time is almost up, but I've got a couple of questions that are being asked, and I'll pose them to you right away. Uh, I just checked uh, to confirm for myself the issue that Kenneth Professor Sabuaji raised. According to the law um if a party is guilty of not doing what is required of it before the electoral commission if they are found guilty by a court they are liable to pay 10 million penalty units 10 million penalty units a penalty unit is 12 ghana cities (laughs) put that together and you know you are looking at over 120 uh, plus or so including or two years in jail. Why are we not enforcing the law? Now there's a question. Um, okay, this one, I suppose that we would have needed, but we can answer it. Will there be voters transfer? If yes, when will that play, take place? Uh, the electoral commission has a timetable. Um, if you go to the electoral commission's website, you might find that timetable and you will know the window within which you can transfer your votes, but you must know that there's within a particular period, if you have not done the process, you will not be uh, able to participate in the elections. Uh, Bright, there's question. Yes. Actually, what has happened is that they decided to limit the transfer to only mm. specific categories
2: of voters, like okay. security services, students, etc. And this, you know, they're doing okay. it purely by exercise of discretion without any discussion.
0: Okay, that's interesting. There's a question directly to you, Bright, and it's from an anonymous uh, questioner. It says, in the scenario that you refer to, uh, did Imani try using the courts? (laughs) You raised that issue concern. Did you try using the courts to get information on the EC's expenditure? Not really. I mean, in some instances, we advocate based on what we, we know.
2: Um, and in some instances, we hope that through the fact of putting the information out there are making a, con- a conclusive claim, the EC will be forced to react. In, in many instances, it is not. We just find the court process very expensive. Um, and as a small, you know, non-governmental organization in a country where we don't have a culture of giving donations, it is rarely the case that the court will be our, our, our first result. Um, mm-hmm. So very rarely will we go to court because it's just not... The, modus, um, the mode of operation that we've adopted for a long time. But we will consider it from time to time.
0: Okay. Uh, a question to Mr. Akutonpao, uh It's this one from um, Yao Joseph. He says, it took sustained campaigns and advocacy, of course, by yourselves. You are the, <laughs> the premiers of that. To get the government to pass the right to information law. Before passage of the law, we all nursed some hope that the law was going to uh, pierce the opaque glass blocking government agencies from citizens. It is almost two years now, and we are back lamenting over some opaque accountability. Uh, is all hope lost for our republic? Of, of course, all hope is not law, lost. And,
4: you know, there is law in the books and law in action. Mm-hmm. There has to be agency by citizens to make the law effective. If the law is passed and duty holders do not comply with it, and you don't, we, we as citizens don't take on the duty holders, then we have a problem. Mm-hmm. So... The law provides that opportunity. It can become real and active through the agency of human beings. That agency can take the form of political demonstrations and so on to put political pressure to bear on on the organization that is refusing to give information or, if need be, legal action. So, but to think that once a, a law or piece of legislation is passed it becomes citizen
0: it is the challenge of active citizenship you know right um the, uh, there's there's uh, a cso that says it made an application for information uh, not to the electoral commission directly but to uh, a state agency and they were asked to go to the education to go to the information ministry to be told about the cost they are supposed to pay to get the information they feel that this is deliberate to uh, frustrate them. What do you say about things like this? I think that this raises the, the, the question
4: of setting up the complete architecture of the, uh, of, of, of the right to information law. You need to have the appointment of the commission, members of the commission, and, and, and of course, the executive secretary. Mm. of the commission and, 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 and the other officials that are required to make the work of the commission effective. Secondly, there needs to be passed the regulations that would detail, for instance, you know, all, all the, the gaps in the law. And thirdly, we need to be clear on what fees people should pay when they make an application. And that, by the law, by the right to information law, must be provided for in the fees and uh, what? The rates legislation. Yeah, the fees
0: regulations, which is done almost annually.
4: Yes, So, so these are matters that we, as civil society activists, have to continue to push. Because if we don't push them, the kind of kind of you know really, uh, uh, how do you call it? Really, I, I want to choose my words carefully. Okay. The, the kind of response that the EC mm. made to one of the applicants for information that they don't have um, the, the skill, the fees, no. and therefore. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they cannot give the information, which, which, which is a meaningless and empty response, mm-hmm. can be used by public institutions that simply do not want to give information.
0: You know? Well, the, so the court, we, the court, the court shut that down. So you would expect that uh, other public institutions will be, will be, will be taking yeah, a cue from that. Advised
4: by that. But if they don't, you can't cite them for contempt. You know? right. So you can't force mm-hmm. them so you may have to go to court again to enforce it and that that is why it is necessary for us to push the ministry of information you know in collaboration with the commission to pass the regulation because mind you the regulation cannot be passed without the establishment of the of the board of the commission because the regulation can only be passed by the ministry of information in consultation or in collaboration with the commission. And the commission remains to be established by the president. So that, is, that should be one of the areas of our political pressure, that the president should, as early as possible, establish the membership of the commission, and in doing so, take into account the proposals of civil society organizations.
1: Hello right. Samson, I just want to add. I mean, on the issue of the publication of the political parties' accounts, if you look at the Political Parties Act, right. I mean, the EC is mandated to publish, to gazette and publish these accounts. I don't know what the challenge um, the EC has with that? particular regards to this provision, because the provisions are clear. You don't need anything. I mean, you don't need the provisions of the RTI. This has been made available already that you are supposed to gazette and then publish it in any national dailies and other platforms that are available. So what is the difficulty of the Electoral Commission in, do, in doing that? Or in ensuring that the parties are playing their part? I think the challenge we have is that the Commission is too focused on the delivery of election as an event. I mean, the, the conduct of certain things like elections, like registration, like uh, the exhibition exercise, whereas all these other areas of its mandate are very critical we are looking at the accountability of the political parties and such a crucial mandate, the EC doesn't feel that it has to live up to it as much as it has to deliver on elections. So these are issues that really we have to uh, mount pressure on the commission.
0: Right. Um, And so soon uh, we have come to uh, the end of uh, today's engagement in the University of Ghana, School of Law, Law in Crisis series, access to electoral information, and voter engagement under the specter of pandemics. Uh, I'd like to say we are very, very grateful to Star Ghana Foundation for supporting uh, these events. And thank you so very much to our panelists, Rhoda Osei-Afo, team leader, elections, rule of law and anti-corruption CDD Ghana, bright simmons of mped degree and honorary executive of imani africa josephine Kroma is chairperson of the ncce and mr akuto ampa is lawyer and a foremost advocate of the right to information law uh, i'm samson Ladi, and i have been blessed to be your uh, moderator for this event Please also look out for the next webinar in the uh, series, Elections and Pandemics, Pathways for Innovative Election Management. Thank you all so very much. Have a good afternoon.